Põe em mim o aroma de Jesus. Please stand by. We'll be streaming live soon. Okay, hang with us. We're we're there. Okay, we're there. We're we're doing Bible study and we're looking at spiritual awakening. It's lesson one, and I am one of several teachers. I'm one of several teachers who are going to be teaching out of this text by Henry Blackaby and Claude King. Okay, uh, so it's not that uh, there's going to be one, uh, just one teaching out of this, and and that's it. It, we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be hearing from several teachers, and the idea is that there's not one teacher or one teaching that's going to capture the idea of a spiritual awakening. It takes a community of believers seeking the Lord, and so so uh, be listening in the mornings, okay? Because we're going to be seeking spiritual awakening. So let's take a look here. At uh, at a few things, there's this prayer. There's this prayer that these guys mention out of the book of Habakkuk. And what I like about this uh, prayer, they encourage us to approach God with the same prayer, the same attitude of prayer. And what I love about this is, see, the idea of a spiritual awakening is is not new. Every generation has to seek it. And it's the same in thousands of years ago in the Old Testament. Habakkuk said, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In, in wrath, remember mercy. In other words, in our time, in our day, in our culture, in our generation, make your, make your works known to us that we would experience the power of God in our midst. And so we are seeking a spiritual awakening. So that's our prayer as we come before God. As we study this book of what it means to be spiritually renewed. God, in our time, in our day, in our family, in our church, in our community, let us see the hand of God move just as many generations throughout history have experienced that. So we'll be sort of pulling out of history, you know, little snippets of spiritual awakenings that have happened in throughout church history and in the Bible. We'll be kind of looking at those and, and some of the characteristics that, uh, that each of them share in common. But here, here are some. Okay, let, let me look at a few. Um, so, what are some of the things that begin to happen in society and in culture when spiritual awakening takes place? Well, bars and taverns close because of lack of business. The bars close down. You know, Pastor Rick, if you hang around with him long enough, he'll, he'll tell you stories about uh, on the streets of Santa Barbara, how uh, he and others will go down the street and begin to pray that, <laughs> that the bars close. And they do sometimes, right? And it's not just there. It's saying, 
this is a common experience. When there's a spiritual awakening, places that encourage sin and debauchery close. Why? Because the people aren't hungry for that anymore. They become hungry for God. Okay? Uh, police and law enforcement personnel face a drop in work due to uh, decreases in crime. Businesses receive money and merchandise from thieves, employees, and shoplifters who are seeking to return stolen goods. Christians and churches begin serious efforts to help the poor and needy in the community through orphanages, rescue missions, and other needs-based ministries. In other words, uh, there's social reforms. It affects politics, too. Laws change. Reconciliation between races and ethnic groups. Foul language is replaced by civil and wholesome talk. Evil practices cease and are often outlawed. Private and public acts of immorality decrease. Marriages are restored and family life is strengthened. In other words, spiritual awakening begins on the inside. They quote this verse. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. But then it begins to become reflected in on the outside. The church begins to look different. Society begins to look different. So we first have to seek the spiritual renewal on the inside of each one of us and then expect it to begin to change the outside. Amen? So let's take a look here at the interchange a little bit. Okay? They ask us to look at this verse that describes New Testament believers in Acts chapter 2. And what they say, it's interesting. They say, uh, in this verse, Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. So I'm going to read these verses. And what they do is they ask us to highlight the emotions, what, what relates to the emotions or the, the inner motivations or what's going on inside of these early believers. And so they're pointing us to what's, what's on the inside. What's happening on the inside of the believers? They say, highlight the emotions, the words that relate to emotions. Or what's going on on the inside? Because they want us to really wrestle with the, the inner change, the inner work of Christ. Okay? So, it's Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. Describing the early believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer, everyone was filled with awe. Okay, there's an emotion word. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were, were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Okay, they're glad and sincere hearts. Glad and sincere hearts. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. So, three words pop out here to me relating to emotions. Let's look at them. What's happening on the inside? They were filled with awe. They were filled with gladness and sincerity. Let's look at those three words real quick, just as a quick word study. And I don't want to spend, I don't want to get bogged down or anything, but this is... Something that happens inside the believers. First one, 
awe. Well, that word is phobos in Greek. Actually, fear. What do you mean fear? That's interesting. Fear of the Lord, right? That's a similar... We've talked about that. Those, those of us who have been around church have heard the concept of the fear of the Lord, right? It's a healthy sense of reverence or awe before God. Now, the awe in this sense is because uh, many miraculous signs are being done by the apostles. In other words, they're seeing God do things that they've never seen done before. Healings. They're seeing neighbors who they know to be hateful and bitter being totally transformed on the inside. Suddenly they're kind. Suddenly they're gentle. It's very difficult to describe the type of awe or fear of the Lord that these people are experiencing and have you understand it unless you've actually experienced it. In other words, when you go to Cuba and you're at the altar and you see people who have that hardness in their face begin to cry, right? Begin to cry, begin to break down right at the altar. You begin to have a sense of the awe. Well, you don't get that in a formalized, institutionalized church where the liturgy determines the order of the service and there's no opportunity for people to respond to the grace of God in their lives. Yikes. Now, I, I'm not against the liturgy in, in, in terms of just, uh, you know, in, in, as a way to approach a service, uh, the liturgy's good. It, it, it encourages us to base our service off of the Word of God. Right? So, good. No problem. Okay, now, but, but when the, the, when the liturgical approach begins to quench the ability for God to move in somebody's heart and come to the altar and cry, then there's a problem. There will never be a sense of awe, of fear of God. In other words, reverence for God is not created in yourself. You don't... It's not a matter of human will. I am going to come into church this morning and be reverent before God. Uh, you know, <laughs> that, that is a self-created reverence that really has no understanding of the presence that you are actually going to enter into. Okay, the type of awe that, that we're talking about here that the, that the, act, that the Christians were experiencing in the book of Acts is a reverence and awe, a fear of God that only comes when you experience God in your midst. And you say, well, I go to church and I experience the liturgy. That's not the same as experiencing the power of God in your midst to convict, to bring healing, and to do miraculous things. And I can tell you, if, if you've never... I can't talk you into understanding it. You literally have to experience it. You say, oh, well, I you know, don't think that I have to experience it to really understand it. And I say, well, uh, I'm sorry, but I think you're dead wrong. Because you, you, you can't theolo theologi theologize. 
That's not a word. You know, you can't intellectualize or reason yourself into understanding what it's like to be in the presence of a holy God. You just can't. You can't think yourself there. It can only be experienced. So, how do we, in a, in a, now those of you watching us from around the world, now many of you live in a culture and in an environment where you experience this. Your, your churches as a whole are seeking this on a regular basis. Now, now some of those watching us, um, in a more Western intellectual culture, okay, rationalization, reason, okay, you're going to have to get outside of your culture to experience it. Oh, sorry, I hate to tell you. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean going to another country or traveling overseas. It can. I mean, I tell you, you go to Cuba with us, you'll experience it. You go to Brazil with us, you'll experience it. You go to Peru with us, you will experience it. Now, there are churches and places where you can experience this type of thing in America. Okay? But I, I want to challenge you if, you, if you are not involved in a community of believers where there is a chance for the presence of God to come in and do miraculous things, and there's not a sense of experiencing that presence so that the fear of God comes because you've experienced the presence, not because you've decided you're going to be reverent. It's two totally different things. Then I want to encourage you to pray and ask God to lead you to a place, not that you would leave your church, but you, that God would show you where you might could go. You know one place you could go? Rekindle the Flame Conference in Athens, Georgia. little ad there, right, for Rekindle the Flame Conference. So, there's one. A sense of awe. What's my main point? Once again, the type of awe that the believers here were experiencing only comes because they actually experienced the presence of God in their midst. They do not will themselves to be reverent before God. Okay. So, let's look at the second one. Um, glad. Exuberant joy. <laughs> Right? Exultation. I mean, they were just, they were, there's a, a sense of fear and just exaltation and excitement went hand in hand. Okay? And that's good. Because, you know, experiencing the presence of God brings fear, but it also brings a lot of joy because suddenly there's a freedom. Right? It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's not a weighty thing. It's, it's not a fear that brings condemnation and heaviness. It's a fear of God that brings freedom and joy. Because God is moving out of His goodness and His kindness and His mercy. He's setting people free. He's delivering people. People who have been under demonic depression are being released from it. People who are have been walking in darkness have seen a great light. You know, the wonderful quotation out of the book of Isaiah and, and it's a wonderful thing, and it brings a lot of joy. So let me ask you this. Are you, are you, are you, have, have you, 
Let me rephrase. No, no let, me, let me start that over. Has your Christian experience been one where joy, excitement is a part of it? Or is it typically somber, passive, sad? I've been in churches that are just sad as could be, man. But just sad people. You ever been in a church like that? Man, makes you want to run away. Who wants to be a part of anything like that? <laughs> I mean, you know what kind of what kind of Christianity is that? Nobody wants to be a part of anything like that. A bunch of sad people who just are sad about life and sad about this and complain about that. No joy, gladness, freedom. You know, oh hallelujah. And they're just, you know, look at the scene they're just sharing. Is that, is that part of your Christian experience? Well, I think it should be. I love this next one. Sincerity of heart. Right? Or the Greek word is aphilotes. I probably said that wrong. Simplicity. It's just simple. Not trying to overcomplicate it. Why? Because it doesn't start with us. It's got nothing to do with our opinions. It's a move of God. It starts with God, ends with God. God's got to show up. Just simply come before God and say, God, please, have mercy upon us. You come simply before God. Not, not reasoning everything and not coming before God with your idea of, what it, of how you're supposed to approach God. I have no idea how to approach God. You know, any opinion or any, any, you know, theology I come up with of, of the right way to come before God is, is gonna be wrong. You know, and also, if we're left up to us to decide, you know, how we're going to come before God, see, God's the one that tells us how to come before Him. And it's by faith. Simple faith, believing, that Jesus is the Son of God, that the Scriptures are true, okay? that He died and rose again, and we have new life in Christ. Simplicity. And then, see, see the tendency in our human nature is, be, is to begin to reason about it. Think about it. Oh, well, what, what does that mean? You know, well, why would a good God, a good loving God, send His Son Jesus. You know, that, that seems just really mean. <laughs> right? And we, come up, we begin to come up with all these reasons why the plan of God just doesn't make any sense. It shouldn't be that way. Oh, there we go. Deciding in ourselves, complicating the matter, deciding within ourselves what we think about how God should behave. So there is a simplicity involved that we just say, okay, God, I'm going to trust in Jesus that He died and rose again. I'm going to trust in the Word of God that things have changed now, that you're here. Well, let's take a quick look in the last few minutes we got here at uh, a little bit of church history, and we won't take too long. A guy named Philip Spencer, okay? Philip Spencer is known. He was uh, uh, lived in the uh, 
17th century, born 1635, died 1705, lived in Germany. He's considered the father of pietism. Oh, well, that sounds intimidating. <laughs> uh, pietism sort of was a movement that, that spread and sort of affected the Moravians. Okay, huge revival there. And uh, the Moravians had a profound influence on John Wesley and others in his circle. Massive movement there. So, uh, Philip Spencer, uh, not Spencer, I'm sorry, Spinner. I keep saying that wrong. Philip Spinner and Pietism. Uh, well, all of us who are Protestants and who are grew up in the Methodist Church or uh, Presbyterian Church or anything like that, well, we have a little bit to thank Philip Spinner. Now, Spinner was a guy who uh, uh, really, well, he wrote a couple books, and, and, and he, as I, I'm not an expert on this guy, but he obviously decided that Christianity was more than an institution. It was obvious that he had come to that place in his life, and that he, he wanted to see Christianity actually lived out in his own life, and he wanted to have an experience with Jesus. And he wanted to see others have the same. And so he wrote some books and, and he actually got into a lot of trouble there. You know, the institution resisted him because he, you know, really was kind of uh, frustrated with the institution in some ways. Um, but he, So he had six principles. You know, I don't want to bore you with this stuff, but I, I just want to show you some of the parallels here of Philip Spinner and pietism now, pietism sort of, sort of began to take on its own characteristics and be known for some things that Spinner did not specifically write about, okay? But he was sort of the catalyst to bring about this movement, okay? So, one, one of the things, one, one of his six principles, okay? The earnest and thorough study of the Bible in private meetings. So, in other words, small groups is not a new idea. Right? 17th century. Philip Spinner, meet in small groups, study the Bible. Now that sounds simple to me. That's one of the things I like about this. It's as simple. Just study the Bible. Hallelujah. He called them little churches within the church. So he did not see this as something that was competing with high church or whatever or competing against the pastor, he saw it as something that was to support the growth and the health of the church. Right? Believers studying the Word of God. Okay? The Christian priesthood being universal. Priesthood of all believers is what you know we call it in Methodism usually. The priesthood of all believers. In other words, the laity should share in the spiritual government of the church. The laity, or, excuse me, laity is people who go to church that aren't pastors. <laughs> Okay, let's put it in simple terms. Uh, people who go to church that are not the pastor. Okay, You also are somebody who can minister to other people. You are somebody who can be trained to bless the people of God, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to pray for someone and see them be healed. Hallelujah. Three, knowledge of Christianity must be attended by the practice of it and its this indispensable sign and supplement. In other words, our lives should reflect that Jesus has done something inside of us. Okay? Instead of merely didactic and often bitter attacks on the 
heterodox and of other believers, okay, a sympathetic and kindly treatment of them. Now, I love this because I see this in that scripture that Blackaby encouraged us to look at. Gladness. Gladness. In other words, angry preaching, okay, bitterness towards, uh, bitterness towards institutionalized churches, bitterness towards unbelievers, okay, is not going to do anything to help them come to terms with the fact that Jesus has saved them. Now, there is a, the idea of God's wrath being stored up for those who do not repent in the end, and that's for God to administer that wrath and not us. And now this does not say that we turn a blind eye to sin or anything like that. Okay? But I love that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, Philip Spinner said, we can't be preaching bitter. We've got to have the joy of the Lord in our hearts. And, that, and unbelievers need to be able to see that joy when we preach and when we share the gospel. Or else it's, it's, not, it's, it's, not, it's going to fall on deaf ears. So are you preaching bitter? Are you, are you, do you have an, an anger against church, against believers who don't act the way you think they should, or unbelievers who just are refusing all the time? And are you preaching bitter? Are you angry towards them? Or are you kind? Can you find mercy? Can you find hope that they will turn? Just as... You know, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the same heart that God had for us before we were saved. That He then asked us to have towards others before they're saved. A recognition of the theological training of the universities giving more prominence to the devotional life. I love that. In other words, let's not be too theological. Simplicity. Right? A different style of preaching, namely... In place of pleasing rhetoric, the implanting of Christianity in the inner and new man. Change of heart, right? The soul of which is faith and its effects, the fruits of life. And so, that's again what Blackaby was saying here, is that the old life of sin, when you put on the new life of Christ, there's going to be a change. You're going to begin to lose the desire, okay, to follow after sin, and you will be changed in the in your inner man, and it will begin to affect how you interact with people. It will begin to affect the words that will come out of your mouth. It'll begin to affect how you evangelize, how you pray for people, and then 